0: Morning, everybody. Thanks, Margie, for reading that. Uh, Go ahead and open up your Bibles if you have one with you or on your phone or one of the Pew Bibles uh, to Haggai chapter 2. We're diving into uh, the Way Harder uh, section of the book of Haggai today. Uh, If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here at Elmwood. Um, I just want to give kind of a fair warning before we kind of dive into things today, and it's this. This is a challenging text. The the whole rest of chapter two is really challenging as we we dive into Haggai, and there's gonna be a good amount of content that you're sorting through, and that sometimes we're gonna feel like we're kind of wading through the waters here, kind of wading through the muck and the mire, but I wanna encourage you to stick with me. If you stick with me, Everyone I've been talking about this text with, whether it be our sermon prep team or our friends of mine, has really found value in, in really diving into this. So I'll call our attention back maybe once or twice as we go through this, but there's a lot of content, but I want to encourage you because there's some super, super good stuff in here. So, so let me pray for us, and then we will see exactly what the beginning of this chapter two has. So, Father, we desire to know you deeply and to live as the people you desire us to be. Lord, would you walk with us through that journey this morning by your spirit? Would your spirit be present with us as we discuss what it means to be thoroughly grounded in you? And Lord, above all, we pray that you would be glorified in this time, that you would be made much of. Pray all of this in, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, Holly and I watched a movie that was called uh, Money Monster. Now, it's quite an interesting movie. I, I would really encourage a bit of discretion when you watch it. There's some parts to fast forward through. But, but it's really interesting. It's with Julia Roberts, George Clooney, some really solid stars in it. And, and effectively, it's, it's kind of this movie about financial conspiracy. And what happens is uh, George Clooney, he, he has this TV show. He's a TV celebrity. And on the show, he gives people uh, investment advice. And what happens to this young man is he follows Clooney's advice and all of a sudden all of his money goes down the drain. And so he's upset and he shows up on live TV, straps a bomb to George Clooney and has a gun and holds everybody in the station hostage on live TV. And the rest of the movie is kind of them sorting through that and, and, and George Clooney's trying to stable, stay alive and they're, they're sorting through the conspiracy and all of that. I won't give it all away. But there's one point I want to highlight in this movie that I found particularly interesting. There's a moment where George Clooney is trying to assuage this young man who is holding him hostage on live TV. And so he tells everybody who's watching TV, he tells them, you all need to invest in this one stock. Because if they all invest in this one company, then they can actually move the market and all of them can make their money back, including this person who's holding them hostage. And so Clooney, looking at the screen, asks two very provocative questions. He says to them this, he says, what is a life worth to you? What is my life worth to you? So he's effectively asking these people on live TV, gun to his head essentially, will you ransom my life? And what's interesting about this question is that he assumes something when he asks it. He assumes that his life matters. He assumes that his life has value. And I don't think that he is alone in that, right? No matter who we are, all of us want our lives to matter. Every one of us strives to make our place in this world in one way or another with different motives, but certainly we seek to do it. And there's a level of, of significance that we ascribe to our existence and the way that we relate to one another and the standards that we set for, for one another say that we ascribe value to our existence. At the end of the day, we all want our lives to count for something. We all want to participate in something that makes a difference. And one of the beautiful parts of today's text, specifically, is that it speaks to this desire that we all have. It speaks to this desire that we all have to matter and to have significance at the end of the day. As we've been journeying through this book of Haggai, we've kind of been tracking with these exiles that have just come out of exile in Babylon for 70 years. And it's been quite a journey with them. And they're really complex. And their emotions are all over the place. And that's not going to change today. We saw that they came back from the 70-year exile. Things weren't the same in their homeland. And so they start trying to set up shop, except they're setting up shop at the expense of actually finishing God's temple. And this goes on for about 15 years, right? Until God calls them back to obedience to him. And that's what we focused on in that first sermon there. We focused that, that God dwelling among them in the temple, his presence was essential to their way of life and is essential to our way of life. Last week, we talked about the fact that they actually listened to God and God empowered them by his spirit to actually begin rebuilding this temple. And that was kind of our main takeaway of God empowering his people to obey him well. But today, we, we encounter these Judeans again and they're having another moment of discouragement because within a month of listening to God and they start building this temple and he's empowering them, within that month, they very quickly realize that this temple is not going to be what it once was. And since that temple was not only central to their religious life, but their entire way of life, it really shook them to their core. It shook them to the core as a people. And they began to feel insignificant. They began to feel like they were of of little value compared to the people around them. And what God does is he calls them back today. He reminds them that although their situation is less than ideal that at the end of the day, their value rests elsewhere. He assures them that he is at work. And in so doing this, he reminds us of something as well. He reminds us that our value in life is to be found ultimately in God's faithfulness. Our value rests in God's faithfulness. So let's see what this text has for us. We'll we'll kind of start right from the beginning. It tells us that in the second year of Darius, on the 21st day of the month, The word came through Haggai, and here's what the Lord says. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, speak to Joshua, and speak to the remnant, speak to the rest of the people. And this is what he's supposed to ask them. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem as nothing to you? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord, for I'm with you. This is, the co- this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So as we kind of dive into the early part of this text, we're seeing that the Lord assures the people of who they are to him. Because this is, remember, Haggai, if, I, if you recall from the first sermon, takes, month, or takes place over a four-month span. So we're about almost two months into this project now. The people begin the work. They see that it's not what they had hoped for. And we see that they respond in a really interesting way. We see that, that they kind of have this, this mixed feelings. They're willing to do the work, and yet there's this source of discouragement that is rising up in them. And the source of discouragement here it, it is really threatening the project as a whole. I'm gonna pull up a text from Ezra 3. Uh, The book of Ezra overlaps with the book of Haggai in the history of God's people. And actually 15 years prior to the text that we are looking at today, we actually see a, a similar response in the people going on. Here's what the text says. It says, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So this is real early on in the building project. But many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud just like they are here in Haggai. They wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the shouts of the joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. And so just like 15 years earlier, there's mixed feelings going on here. The people know that building the temple is good, but they're struggling over this idea that it may not be good enough. And to understand this tension, to understand this wrestling inside of them, I think we have to have a sense of of the weight of how glorious Solomon's temple was before it was destroyed. Here's a text from 1 Chronicles chapter 22 where King David is talking to King Solomon, his son, who is going to actually build that first temple, about the resources that he's going to give to it. He says, Now, my son, the Lord be with you, and may you have success and build the house of the Lord your God, as he said you would. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel, so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Now, listen to what he says. I've taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold a million talents of silver quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed and wood and stone and you may add to them you have many workers, stone cutters, masons and carpenters as well as those skilled in every kind of work in gold and silver, bronze and iron craftsmen beyond number now begin the work and the Lord be with you Okay, so David takes out of his treasury, gives it to his son Solomon for the temple building project. That's the very temple that was destroyed, the temple that in the text of Haggai today, they are trying to rebuild. And we need to understand that the gold and the silver alone that was contributed to this initial temple is tens of tens of tens of tens of tens of of billions of dollars in today's economy worth of gold and silver so is it right for them to be frustrated when they're stuck under Persian rule with barely any money and resources and they're looking back to this temple as it was and they're looking at the one now and they're discouraged is it right for them to feel that way well it certainly makes sense right and think about what this would do to your ego and your identity as a nation these people who God had promised great things to were now under Persian rule they didn't even have the dignity to rule over themselves. And when it comes to their population, not, every, not everyone came back from exile with them. And some people will never come back from exile with them. So they don't have the people, they don't have the authority, and that's not even including the financial resources that they don't have to rebuild this temple. So they're looking at this temple and they're trying to obey God, but what it feels like to them is they feel like this thing is small potatoes. This is nothing. This is nothing. How is God gonna be glorified in this? What, what do I make of this? And I think what the Lord says to them is telling. The way that he responds to them is of enormous value. Where he, he says to them, be strong. And in verse five, he says, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you, do not fear. So what we see happens is God points them back to the exodus when he freed them, when he liberated them out of Egypt to be his people, when he called them into covenant with him, he says that he he, he calls them the people that he made covenant. But here's the thing. These people were not there when God made covenant with them. That moment was 700-ish plus years before we even get to the book of Haggai. But I think the fact that they were not there is exactly the point that God is making to them. I think that he is communicating to them something very very profound, very beautiful. That although their situation is different, they are still those covenant people to him. Although they might feel like they belong to Persia, he's saying, no, you ultimately belong to me. He's saying, although this temple looks different, although things about this temple have changed, my love, my care for you is steadfast. And that has not changed. You see, these Judeans, they were seeing themselves in light of their their horizontal situation. They were looking around them. They were letting that inform ultimately who they were. They were looking at it and saying, what is going on around me must ultimately be who I am. This must tell me who I am. And they were feeling significant, insignificant, excuse me, and they were feeling valueless. But the Lord was calling them not to see themselves in light of their horizontal circumstance. He says, you need to see yourselves in light of your most vertical, relationship. Your value rests ultimately not in how you relate to the world, but in how you relate to me. So while they may have felt like a nobody, God was saying, so long as you are mine, you will always be a somebody. And church, I hope the relevance of that, I hope the the weight and the beauty of that is not lost on us. Because just as they experience, we live in an ever-changing society, in an ever-changing world, where it feels like you're always running a sprint if you wanna keep up with the latest trends, with the latest fads, whatever it is. That saying here today, gone tomorrow, I don't think could be more applicable to the world we live in. And if we bank our hope and our identity on that horizontal dynamic, the circumstances around us, then here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna feel discouraged. We're gonna feel disappointed we're gonna feel lost, we're gonna feel frustrated, we're gonna feel like we have no value in the world. But I think that constant turnover of values culturally should be our indicator that that is not where we are meant to place our hope. Because it's easy to look at the world, it's easy to look at the culture, it's easy to look at the church and to be disheartened, to be discouraged, and that, and, and when we are that way, sometimes we end up playing into the world's outrage. The world is really good at being outraged at things. It's always telling us what we should be outraged about. But the point of the text in Haggai is this, that what's around us, what's going on around us, is not always the best indicator of what God is doing right? It's not always the clear indicator of what God's up to. Sometimes it is, right? These people had just come off of exile where their, where their circumstances were an indicator, but now that's not the case for them. That despite the feelings that they might have of what's going on around them, God is doing something, even if they may not see it. And that's exactly the dynamic that, that's playing out here. So let's, let's look at verses six through nine. So take a look at these with me, and this is where it's going to get tricky. It says, this is what the Lord says. In a little while, While I once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all the nations and what's desired for all the nations will come and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. Okay, I said that I would call you back to paying attention and this is if you've zoned out, this is the part where you need to pay attention, okay? We are about to to wade into uh, the deep end. And I just wanna preface this by saying I am certainly not an expert in the book of Haggai, but there are some things that I think we need to keep in mind as we navigate this part of the text, And, and they're very helpful, and I want you to pay attention to this because they won't only help you with Haggai, it'll help you anytime you're reading any sort of biblical prophecy, any sort of prophetic literature. It's this. So when we are reading biblical prophecy... We need to be very, very careful as we do this because, for a couple of reasons. One is because prophets are not always trying to tell the future. In fact, that's not, if you read the scriptures through and through, that's not their primary job description. In pop culture today, sometimes people think that's what they do, but that's not always what they do. Usually, they are calling people back to obedience to God himself. And sometimes they recycle old images in the scripture in order to do that. And sometimes they use the future in order to do that. But their primary job description is to call people back to obedience to God. So, prophet does not equal fortune teller. Okay? Prophet does not equal fortune teller. However, when God does reveal to the prophets of what he is up to, sometimes those prophecies are fulfilled within a very short time, okay? Sometimes they happen way out here. Sometimes God says, I'm gonna do this way out in the future. Sometimes he makes a promise to them and it is fulfilled within a very short time. And that means that at times, the prophecy that's fulfilled in their future is in our past, Because there is a large span of time between them and between us today. Finally, sometimes prophecies may have more than one fulfillment. In scripture, oftentimes prophecies act like echoes, where God gives gives a prophecy and it echoes throughout time and is fulfilled in multiple ways until it finally gets to its climax. So, prophets aren't fortune tellers. Sometimes prophecies are fulfilled within a very short time of them being given in scripture. And sometimes the prophecies have more than one fulfillment. Notice the italics there, sometimes, because there, there are nuances to be had with all of this. So let's bring this back now to Haggai and let's apply these things as we sort through it. So God tells them that he is going to bring in the resources to glorify himself. Now, glory, in the immediate context here, certainly means financial provision. It certainly means wealth and riches. But if you look at it in the context of the entire scriptures, it also kind of has a double meaning there, where it reflects the fact that God desires to dwell visibly, beautifully among his people, just like he did in the previous temple that they are presently mourning. And he makes two promises to them. These are the promises you need to keep in mind. The first promise that he says to them is that the glory of the house that they are presently building is going to be greater in some way than Solomon's first temple. So the glory is gonna be greater. The second thing he tells them is that in that place, whether that be the temple or Jerusalem, in that vicinity, he is going to bring a sense of peace. Okay, so there's gonna be peace and there's gonna be glory. So looking at our principles that that we have up on the screen here, let's ask this question. Was that prophecy ever fulfilled within their generation or within a short time after that? And the answer to that question is kind of, maybe, sort of, okay? Okay. Because what we know, if we look back at history, if you look back at Ezra, which we looked at earlier, we find that there were actually two Persian kings, the first one being Darius, and the second one 60 years later named Artaxerxes, who actually did command that money and riches be brought to this temple that they're building. So God did, in some sense, gloriously provide for that temple that they were discouraged about, okay? But that was only in part, and we'll get back to the other part later. But I want to ask, if God did, in some way, partially fulfill that prophecy to them, I want to ask, what are the implications of that for them in their context? How did they experience all of that? They felt incapable. Right? They didn't have the resources before the, the, the stuff was commanded to be brought along. The few of them that were left from the first temple, they realized that this new temple wasn't measuring up. But God had a message for them. And I think this is what I, I wanna hone in on for just a second. Prophecy is not something to decode. Prophecy is a message from God for his people. And so I wanna ask, what is the message that God had for them? Because that's where the principle lies for us the message that God had for them was this, that his ability to glorify himself was not confined to what they saw or to what they immediately had on hand. God was not bound by their immediate situation. And their job was not to do what they wanted to do but couldn't do. Because they wanted to build this temple up, but they couldn't do it. Their job was to do what God had called them to do. They were called to rebuild. They were called to finish the temple. And God said that he was going to bring the glory, which he certainly did. And in this, there's a principle for us as well that I think transcends time, that the Lord will provide for the work that he requires. The Lord will provide for the work that he requires. God's faithfulness, guys, is not bound to our circumstances and to our situation even though our our steps of obedience at times may feel insignificant, they may feel like small potatoes like this temple, right? They may feel like they're not contributing much. The reality is that in God's economy, under God's sovereignty, he can do amazing things. And that's actually the pattern that we see throughout scripture, right? The Bible story is not a story of great and godly people doing wonderful things for God. Okay, the Bible is a story of people doing very, very small things and God showing up to do a wonderful work to glorify himself. Think about this. Let me, let me think about some examples here. Uh, Moses. Let's talk about Moses for a minute. Moses was the one through whom God parted the Red Sea. What was Moses' role in parting the Red Sea? Stick in the water. Okay, that's not a big task, right? And God threw up the sea like a wall, right? Small things, God shows up to do the work. Think about David slaying Goliath. This is kind of like the big hero story in the Bible. But have you ever thought about what, what David actually does? He, he says a few choice words to Goliath, he swings a stone around his head and throws it at a big person, right? And it's through that that God rescues his people from the Philistines, right? People doing small things, stepping out boldly in faith, and God shows up to glorify himself through doing the work. So the point is this, that God is not dependent on our resources. He's not dependent on our financial resources, our physical resources, our emotional resources, whatever it is. You might feel incapable, but the point of the text is that God is not. God is perfectly capable of bringing about his plans and purposes, and that's good news because that means you can be used by God no matter what season you're in, not because of who you are, although you are valuable, although you do matter, but because of ultimately, because of who he is, because he is powerful, because he is capable. He has given us gifts to serve and to steward, but he's not dependent on those gifts. So that is the immediate implications of the text. But now let's wade into the water a little bit further now and let's ask, did this text ever come to complete fulfillment? Does the echo of this prophecy ever end anywhere? And the answer is yes, but we need to swim a little bit deeper. Let's remember that this prophecy God gives to them, this message that God gives to them has two promises, his glory the glory of the temple be greater than the first one and that he will, bring, he will bring peace, excuse me, in that place. So let's think about the glory. Did the glory thing ever happen? Well, we know that within 500 years of this text being written, uh, King Herod, Herod the Great, just prior to the first century and into the first century, turned that mediocre temple into one of the greatest temple complexes the world had ever known. It, be- it came to be about 35 acres of property, of temple complex, okay? And tons of riches were poured into making this an amazing place. So in one sense, the temple became even more glorious than these people could have ever imagined. And yet there was also a sense where God's glorious presence still was not visibly dwelling there like it was in Solomon's temple. So it was kind of fulfilled, but maybe not, okay? Let's think about the peace dynamic. Was there ever peace for God's people? Well, there was peace at times, but it was never lasting. There was never that sense of wholeness, that sense of shalom, right? There was never that sense where God's people were brought to obedience and there was peace in all of the land. So the reality is, is that for years and years, for 500-ish years, this prophecy never really came to complete fulfillment. That is until we meet Jesus. And Jesus completely changed things. You see, the, the dynamic that we're dealing with here in, in the text is challenging. And here's why it's challenging, because it's interacting with, with a couple of themes that we see throughout the scriptures. In the scriptures, we see that, that God will not dwell among sin. He will not dwell among his people's rebellion. And so there's a problem that if God is going to dwell in glory among his people, that sin somehow needs to be dealt with, Right? There's also the problem of of peace, because true peace is impossible apart from God changing something within us, right? Because we are not inherently people of peace. It takes five minutes on the news, turn it on, you realize that human beings trend oftentimes towards chaos. So if God is gonna fulfill this promise of peace, he has to deal with our hearts. So in order for this prophecy to really be fulfilled that we think about in Haggai, God needs to do something drastically among his people. We see that he needs to do something to take care of sin and to transform humanity on the deepest level. And in Jesus, we see that's exactly what he does. He makes a way for both of these things. In Jesus, we see that despite our rebellion, despite our unfaithfulness, despite our sin and pushback on God, that God takes on flesh in Christ to be the human, the faithful human that we could never be. Right? And he lives the sinless life that in obedience to the Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit that we would never live. And he dies on the cross in our place. And as he does that, he takes upon himself the burden of our sin. He handles the sin issue that we could never handle on our own. And as he rises three days later, he conquers sin and death and he ascends to the Father and he invites us to trust in him. He invites us to completely abide in him to give him our loyalty, to believe in him for who he is and what he has done. And here's the promise that he makes to us. He promises that our sin is forgiven and that his spirit changes our hearts to make us people of peace. You see, in Jesus, God takes care of the sin issue so that he can dwell in glory. And he takes care of the peace issue because he begins to change us by his spirit. Jesus makes righteousness and wholeness as this text looks forward to even possible. So when we look at Christ, the climax of this prophecy comes to a head in him. And and if he can't make this thing happen, then nobody can. So we see it comes to a head in Christ. And yet the scriptures also look forward to the fact that there's even more to come. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 12 here. I don't know if I have a slide for that one. I guess not. I'll just read this to us. Hebrews 12 is the only place in the New Testament where Haggai is explicitly quoted. And here's what it looks forward to. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. "'See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. "'If they did not escape when they refused him "'who warned them on earth, "'how much less will we if we turn away from him "'who warns us from heaven?' At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Here's the quote from Haggai, "Once more I will shake not only the heaven, not only the earth, but also the heavens." The words "once more" indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, do you see what the author of Hebrews does there? He tells them that what Jesus has done will eventually result in all things being made new in the end. We read that at Jesus' return, he is going to universally establish a kingdom where he will enact justice, where he he will make everything right, where he will dwell in majesty once again among his people, where the temple is not the only place where where God dwells, but where the entire cosmos will be the temple where God will be with his people. And sin and death will be done away with so there will be abiding and everlasting peace. So has this prophecy been fulfilled in Jesus? Well, yes and no. It was fulfilled when he signed the covenant in his blood on the cross. And when he does that, rises from the dead, we became sure that, this, that the promise of this prophecy would come to fulfillment. But it is also being fulfilled in us as God makes us into people of peace, as he makes us into ambassadors of peace who go and draw more people into God's kingdom and invite them to trust in Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is really clear that it will be fulfilled when Jesus finally comes, makes all things right, and comes again in glory. You see, this whole prophecy's fulfillment, both then, within the short time of things happening, both at the time of Jesus, both as the Spirit is working among us, and what will happen in the future, it all rests in Jesus' Jesus work then, now and in the future. You see this, Jesus, think about it like this. Jesus is effectively God's glorious presence among us. He is God's glorious presence who brings peace. What is the what is the thing that this text looks forwards to looks forward to? Glory and peace. This is Jesus, friends, right? And he assures us of who we are to him. We've been reading a whole lot as we've gone through Haggai, but especially today about these people letting their circumstances define who they were, right? They thought because things didn't look good that the situation must not be good. They thought because things were not what they had hoped that, that they weren't all that important, that they didn't have all that value. There was a disconnect between who they believed they were and who God was telling them they were because God said that it is not true that they don't matter. He said that they are precious, that they are valuable to him, that they are full of dignity, that they are valuable to him. Okay, He he tells them that they are made in his image and they are the people that he has covenanted with. And in the gospel, we are reminded that the same thing holds true for us. Jesus is our reminder that our situations in life don't ultimately reflect who we are. Because we see in Jesus that it was through the most gruesome, most horrendous, most broken situation, the, the crucifixion of God's son, that God was actually rescuing us, that he was actually restoring us. I want us to understand this, that Jesus' work on the cross not only saved you, but it now defines you. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the place where we are reminded, where where it was demonstrated once and for all that just like they are, we too are valuable, precious, worthy of honor, worthy of respect, that we matter in this world. And so the gospel must be our primary lens through which we come to find out who we are. So as we come to the table, I want to remind us that every week I'm asking us to, to consider something. I'm asking us to to ponder, to meditate on something. The first week, I asked us to consider the nearness of God, that God wants to be in relationship with us, that he desires to be close to us, right? This this past, last week, we considered the nature of God, who God is, that he is just and he is good, that he is merciful and that he has sent his son, right? But today, I don't just want us to consider who God is, I want us to consider what God has done as we think about the faithfulness of God. Think about how God has been faithful to you. Now, most notably, obviously, that's going to be in Jesus. But ask yourself the question, how has God been faithful to me in my life, practically in my life? Where have you seen him, guys, protect you in your life? Where have you seen him comfort you and give you strength when you didn't have strength? Where are the places where you have seen God provide for you in ways that you couldn't understand? Where have you seen him guide you into into situations that you could not have provided for yourself? See, as we come to, to the Lord's table this morning, I want us to keep this in mind, that the Bible, not only in Haggai, but all throughout, goes out of its way to constantly remind God's people of who they are. And yet it does this in a really unique way, because it doesn't flatter us, it doesn't boost us up with, with, with all of these these characteristics of who we are and and why we're so great. Here's what the Bible does to remind us of who we are: it constantly tells us what God has done. And so, church, as you come to the, the as you come to communion, here's what I need you to remember: that who you are is ultimately because of what He has done. Your value, your ultimate value, doesn't rest in yourself. Doesn't rest in your wins and your losses. It doesn't rest in in your joys and your challenges. It rests in his faithful victory over sin and death in your place. That is where God demonstrated once and for all that he is not only king of kings, but that he is so good that he desires us to be in relationship with him, to be people who love one another, and that we are people who actually matter in this world that we have a, a role to part to play as we partner with God, as we draw more people into that kingdom, as we seek to be ambassadors of this wonderful God who has saved us and who now defines us. Let's take a minute to reflect on, on some of this stuff, and then I will close us in prayer. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. By the things that we've done, by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we've not loved you with our whole heart, our mind, and our strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, it's so easy to look at our horizontal circumstances and to define ourselves by what's going on around us. It's so easy to to devalue ourselves and and to degrade others based on on the standards of the world. And yet in Jesus, Lord, you have demonstrated that the great standard of righteousness and perfection has been reached in our place. You remind us, Lord, in Jesus, that we are ultimately not defined by who we are and what we have done, the mistakes that we've made, the idols that we have set up but we are ultimately defined by your son being hung on a tree and being raised to life. Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been? Would you draw us once again to yourself? Would you help us to to define ourselves by our vertical relationship with you? Would you help us to see that how we relate to you is ultimately the thing that should define who we are? Would you help us amend who we are in light of that and live in light of that? Would you direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways all to the glory of your name and all of God's people said, amen.